Hello again, brothers and sisters. Thanks for joining me for episode 27 of Storytime with Boone. First things first, you might have heard uh, that you're now listening to an award-winning podcast. It's official. Last week, Storytime with Boone won the bronze in the uh, Podcast of the Year category at the UK's most prestigious radio industry awards ceremony. So it happened in Leeds, uh, the Radio Academy uh, put on the Arias. It used to be called the Sonys. It's the Arias now, the... uh, Audio and Radio Industry Awards. And myself and Distorted Productions won ourselves a bronze for Storytime with Boone. And we're chuffed. Uh, it was held at the first direct arena in Leeds. And uh, big thanks to all the judges, obviously. And to everybody at the Radio Academy and yourselves, mainly. You guys out there for putting us right on the map. Uh, following Storytime and spreading the word. It's uh, It's been great. The last, uh, well, started in January. Only 27 episodes in and there's my bronze. <laughs> It's funny, it's brought a new uh, meaning to the me, me old catchphrase from XFM Manchester. I'm like, look at me bronze, look at me bronze, who wants to touch me bronze? Well, I've got a bronze now and I'm proud of it. Uh, well done as well to the other nominees and uh, the winners, in particular the uh, the gold winners, which were the um, the BBC Radio 1 Newsbeat team with a, a brilliant piece of work called The Story of Izzy Dix. They got the gold, silver went to the modern man and uh, Storytime with Boone, bronze. Absolutely brilliant. We had a great time as well. The party was amazing in Leeds. It was uh, probably one of the best occasions of its kind that I've been to. I've been to these sort of things before. They're usually in London and this was in Leeds. It was brilliant. Uh, Sarah Cox presented it. She was amazing. And we were serenaded by the likes of uh, Rick Astley. Rick Astley, yeah. And uh, Kaiser Chiefs as well. So well done again to all involved. Right then, from the next episode, there'll be a slight change to story time with Boone. Uh, We've decided that in order to keep this thing going, we're going to start including advertisements at the start and at the end of each episode. Now, at the moment, the podcast makes no money at all. And as you can imagine, it takes a long time putting it together, myself and the distorted productions people. So the adverts are going to just help things keep moving. And at the end of the day, I want this to be a a long time thing. I want it to be permanent if possible. So hopefully you won't mind me sticking some adverts in there. Thanks as always to my friends at Distorted uh, for helping me to deliver this baby to you every fortnight. On this episode, I'm going to be talking a lot about uh, engines and wheels, about motorbikes and fast cars. I'm going to be telling you about my years as a motorcyclist, much of which I spent with uh, the C word plastered across the front of my crash helmet. It's a long story, but I think you'll like it. And I'm also going to talk about that, that really naff thing that a lot of celebrities do, where they get a free car, you know, on the condition that they have the name painted on the side of it for advertising purposes and all that. No way, no way would I ever do that. There's no way I'd ever do that again. Well, yeah, I did it. I did it once, but I'll tell you all about that in this episode. On each episode, I talk about how a particular song that I've written over the years came about, and today, uh, back on the subject of motorbikes, I'll talk about another track from the NG Benji album that I made, and it's a song called Go More Go, and I'm very proud of it. I'll give you a little update as well this week on uh, Project Rabbits, the ongoing story of Snowflake and Caramel, the latest additions to the Boom family. The unsigned band that you're going to hear at the end of the episode, they're called Nihilist, and it's a Manchester band that are going to do really well. I know they're going to do really well. But I'll also tell you about the unique way that a team of doctors have got together uh, to help to get this record out. It's brilliant. And as with every episode of Storytime, you will find a Spotify playlist that I've put together to accompany this episode. You'll get full versions of all the tracks that you've been hearing in between the stories. Okay, let's do it. Storytime with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes. I spent about 10 years of my life as a motorcyclist. That's right, a biker. 1975, roughly, to 1985. And it was a time in my life that I remember very fondly, even though I've never enjoyed being cold. I've always hated cold weather, you know what I mean? 
And being a biker in Oldham, it equals being really cold for like 80% of the year. Oldham's on a hill. It's only about eight miles outside Manchester, but it's about 17 miles higher up above sea level than Manchester. And the frost up there, it does, it cuts you, cuts right through to your core, you know what I mean? Sometimes my ears pop. When I'm driving up the hill from Manchester to Oldham, I can feel my ears popping. And I did grow up intending to be a biker. It's not something I fancied as a kid, but because the law allowed, it probably still does actually, allowed for you to ride a moped from 16 years old. It was a great option. It was a great way of getting your uh, getting your wheels. I mean, like the Merton Parkers reminded us all in 1979, you need wheels, don't you? They were right, they were right. And I didn't fancy waiting another year, you know, to be, to get a car at 17. I thought, right, I want to be mobile at 16. And my mate did as well, my bestie mate, Kenny Burry, he fancied it as well, you know, we were going to get bikes when we were 16, that was it. So we spent the first half of 1975 doing our research, you know, looking at what bikes we fancied and also working on our parents because we knew that the only way that me and him could get mopeds would be if our mums and dads bought them for us. We both turned 16 in June of 1975. Me and Kenny were born on the same day, so 28th of June, 1959. That's when we were born. It was a Sunday morning. I remember it well, church bells and all that. But we used to say when we were growing up, me and Kenny, we, we used to say we were twins but not brothers and at some point that became twits but not buggers. I don't know who made that up, whether it was me or him, or probably our dads or something, twits but not buggers. Anyway, late June 1975, Kenny's on holiday somewhere with his mum and dad, and my parents drove me over to Rochdale to a motorbike shop called Kingsway Autos, and they bought me this stunning Italian moped that I wanted called a, a Fantic Caballero. And me and Kenny had spent months researching, and this was our dream moped, this was the one, you know what I mean? And it was more expensive than... Like the, the popular mopeds, like the Honda SS50 and the, the Yamaha FS1E, or the Fizzy, as we used to call it. It was more expensive, but it looked better. It looked really good. It looked a million times better than any of these things. The Caballero was like, it's a beautiful, like a blue scrambler style bike with big fat knobbly tyres and big handlebars and a really cool exhaust pipe. And it had a little leather bag on top of the fuel tank to put your bits and pieces in. And being someone who's always had a thing about bags, I love bags, mate. I can't walk past bags in a in a shop without stopping for a lot of suitcases of all they get me, get me going. So, anyway, I think it was that leather pouch on the fuel tank that really sold the, the Fantic Caballero to me. <laughs> I think when we got them, I think they are about 400 quid each, like three £399, I think they were. So it's a lot of money. And like I said before, all the competitors were half that price. So our mums and dads were dead good for sorting us out, you know, because we didn't have jobs or anything, we had no income. And they were fast as well, these Fantics. You could do, you could easily get 50 out of it. You'd get 60 out of it if you made a few alterations to the engine. But it'd be screaming like a pig. You could hear it coming across, you know, miles away. You know, only that kind of thing. And if I remember correctly, right, my registration number, I'm pretty sure it was JBN14N. It might have been JBU14N, but I think it was JBN14N. I'm going for that. JBN14N it was. One really shit thing about mopeds in the 1970s, and if you're my age, you'll, you'll remember this, but they always came with a pair of actual pedals on them, you know, like cycle pedals, because these machines were designed to be pedaled like a bike until the engine kicked in. And the better designed mopeds could be started by simply lifting the pedal and just gently pushing it down, and it start. It sort of doubled as a kickstarter pedal, but it looks shit. You know, you'd be there with a cool bike, and some lad would be looking at like, hey, man, I like your bike. Who's it made by? Are those pedals? Has he got pedals? Is it a toy or something? Hey, lads, look, he's got pedals on it. <laughs> like that. And you better like some open, man. You've got, what would happen, right? The reason these bikes had pedals on them, and this is true, right? In the early 1970s, some unwitting politician, 
he changed the law so that 16-year-olds could ride these small motorcycles or mopeds as long as, and I quote, if it was capable of being pedalled using its own set of pedals, right? So that, that's just a little law. So I think the, the politician thought it'd just be like a cycle with a bit of, a bit of an engine on it. But anyway, so the, the Japanese um, motorcycle manufacturers and the Italians started knocking out these amazing machines that were like, they're just like micro motorbikes. You know, they're fast and they look great. And they're putting pedals on them just to get around this, some British bylaw, you know what I mean? Anyway, Kenny comes back from holiday and he saw that I got my bike, my moped, my Fantic Caballero, and he immediately played that card. He went to his dad. He said, Dad, Clint's got his moped now. Can I, can I get mine? Can I get one? So they went over to Kingsway Autos. He got a bike exactly like the one I had, same colour, everything. And he even got the, the number plate, JBN, 15N, so the number right after mine. And within days of like that, cruising around Oldham side by side, you know, like those motorbike cops in that 70s American motorcycle drama, cop drama, Chips, yeah? C-H-I-P-S, Californian Highway Patrol Summit. John and Poncherello, right? We were like that. We, we thought we were the fucking bollocks, man, I tell you. And I got a bit obsessed with the the old American motorbike cop thing. I got really into it. I even started talking like these these guys off chips. And my helmet, I had an open-face crash helmet. And I even painted that to look like an American cop. I painted it black and white. It was like an open-face helmet, black and white. I was there. Got the gauntlets as well, big leather gloves, black and white. I looked like a proper cop. Well, like a baby proper cop. I was a skinny little thing, you know what I mean? But I was living the dream, baby, you know what I mean? And, and Kenny was as well. Although he was pretending to be American superbike racing hero, Kenny Roberts. I was more of a Barry Sheen man. He was Kenny Roberts. And back then, once you got your provisional driving licence, you could ride a moped on the road as long as you put L plates on it. And to upgrade to a full motorbike licence, you had to take a test, a driving test on a motorbike, right? Not a moped, you had to take it on an actual motorbike. And I thought, well, that's a bit out of order. Isn't it? I, I can't go and buy a bike just so I can take it. You know what I mean? I didn't want to borrow one because I knew my Caballero. I knew how to ride it. So I thought, I know what I'll do, right? I'll make my moped look like a motorbike. So what I did, I took the left-hand side pedal completely off the shaft and I removed the, the black rubber bit of the right-hand pedal. You know the bit with the reflector stuck in the back of it? And that just left an L-shaped metal pedal thing on, on the right. So it looked a bit like a kickstart pedal. And then I bought some proper motorbike footrests from the motorbike shop and I screwed them onto the frame just under the engine. So my moped now looked like a, a real motorbike and I took my test on it and I passed first time and I rode off into the sunset. And on that licence, because I passed that, I ended up driving a Honda Goldwing a few years later. So, you know what I mean? I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking that makes my driving test certificate and therefore my subsequent driving licence null and void. But you know what? It's been 40 years now, so let them try and get me. You know what I mean? They probably well, they won't be bothered. They've got better things to be doing, other than chasing me about for taking my bike test again. When we turned seventeen, me and Kenny, we both got bigger, more serious motorbikes. I went on to a Suzuki GT five hundred, which was this super fast two stroke machine. LTE three six five P and I invested in my first ever full face crash helmet, you know, one of those with a piece across your chin and that. And I went for a black one, got a black one, and I bought some white Stickers, you know, like the letters that you make your own registration plates with. I got this, the letters C L I N T, and I'm, I put them across the mouthpiece of my helmet. It looked brilliant. I looked like Barry Sheen. And all my biker mates thought it was really funny after that to make an alteration to my helmet. So whenever I'd put it down, like in a pub or whatever, I would be out and about and I wasn't looking, they'd connect the L and the I either with bits of white paper or more often we're not Tipex. They used to carry Tipex just so they could do this trick on me. 
And I didn't know anything about it. I'd just put my helmet on. See you later, lads. I'd be off, you know what I mean? And then I'd be like, you know, I'd be in the petrol station. People would be staring at me or in the corner shop and kids would be like, mum, look, on his helmet and that. And I'd be there with cunts, on, you know, across front of me, mush in big letters. Cunt. And I didn't know anything about it. So I'd be swanning about, all right, buddy. All right, yeah. Can bottle me up, please? Cunt on my face like that. And it went on for years. Even when I eventually upgraded to a white helmet, I think it was called a Nova. And I put black letters on the front, same again, C-L-I-N-T. And after that, nothing more than a, a black marker pen was needed, you know, to make me look a cunt again, so to speak. You know what I mean? Anyway, all through this part of my life, I didn't, I never really embraced the same music as the rest of the bikers. They were all getting down with all the, the usual rock stuff, so Motorhead and Leonard Skinner and Led Zepp and all that, which is fine, but I wasn't really that, that into it. You know, I'd been through the punk thing. I'd recently been a punk rocker and... I was more into 60s garage music and I was in love with bands like The Who and The Kinks and The Beach Boys and a lot of the mod music, ska music, Prince Buster and Max Romeo. I was into all that kind of stuff. And they all thought I was off me, not these fellas over here. We had a thing that we, we started doing, I think I started it one night and we were playing pool and started putting the pool chalk, you know the blue chalk that you put on the end of your queue? Started putting that on the end of my nose. Still do it sometimes for a laugh. And we started calling ourselves the Blue Nose Mods for a laugh. It's like a load of bikers, maybe white jeans on and that, but all with blue nose and that. I remember how back then some of us really looked up to the dispatch riders. We envied them a bit, really, if, you know, if I'm honest. But you'd see them zipping around Oldham and Manchester, like delivering messages and small parcels for a living. You know what I mean? It looked like the, the dream job, you know, just riding your bike around all day for money, looking dead cool, whatever the weather, in your bell staffs and that. Dead hard. And later in life, I actually wrote a little song about um, a dispatch rider, which I'm going to play later on in this uh, this podcast. In time, I upsized to one of the classic motorbikes of all time. I didn't realise at the time it was going to become a classic bike of all time, but it did. But it's a beautiful second-hand uh, 1978 Honda Goldwing. It was a red thing, beautiful. And I bought it in um, 1980, 1,600 quid it cost me. I was working by then, so I managed to, I think I got a bank loan and paid this myself, which was nice. And at the time, the Goldwing was the, I think it was like the biggest production bike being made by the Japanese. It was huge. I think a, bit, a couple of years later, Yamaha made the, 1100 and then Kawasaki made a 1300, this kind of thing. But this thing that I had, it weighed about a third of a ton. And I was only 10 stone at the time, proper skinny, right streak of piss, little bony thing from Oldham, punk rocker, big feet, trying to hold up this 640 pound of high tech Japanese engineering upright, third of a ton. I only ever dropped it once though. I was parking up on uh, the campsite, I got to Brands Hatch for some races. And I parked up on, on and it went over. They put my side stand down and it just went, just sunk. The entire thing went over and sunk sideways into the soft ground. And I'm there trying to pick it up. And the side to me trying to pick it up, I couldn't get the bugger up. But there's all these like Germans, it, was, like, it caused great mirth amongst these German Goldwing owners camped up next to me. 
heartless twats. All they're laughing. I'm, oh, oh, oh. I think it was Dave Brad, my mate Dave Brad, who came to my rescue and um, helped me to get it upright. And in time, I fitted it with bigger handlebars on it to look a bit more American, I think. I, I put bigger handlebars on it, a better looking exhaust system. The factory fitted exhaust on the original Goldwings, it looked like a pair of Long Johns. They weren't very good looking at all, so I put some nice pipes on it, sounded great as well. And I fitted it with one of those King and Queen seats, you know, like Hell's Angels having the choppers and all that. I got it from California. And I fitted it as well with a, a smaller back wheel. I put a smaller back wheel on it because it made it go faster. It made it accelerate quicker, but it brought the top speed down a bit. So I made it look smart. By the end of it, it looked like, you know, proper like custom, custom job, Goldwing. Having the biggest, heaviest bike in the gang at that time, it gave me a longer life expectancy as well, I believe, in hindsight. I didn't really drive round as fast as some of the other lads in the gang or some of the girls as well in the gang. We'd go out on these rides and I'd usually just settle in at the back and that, like an old bloke. I'd usually be the one picking everybody up on the bends after they'd come off, you know, skidding on spilled oil or avoiding a baby lamb, shit like that. On one occasion, my mate Dave, I mentioned before, Dave Bradbury, blue Suzuki GS750 he had. He came off on a bend on the way to um, some superbike races. I think we're on our way to Donington, Donington Park. He's good, Dave. From the moment I first met Dave, back in 1978, I'm guessing, he's been a total boy racer. I'm saying that with all respect. He still is. But back then, he'd take us out in his mum's MG Metro. His mum had a little MG Metro, you know, an Austin Metro, but the, the MG version. And he could get it on two wheels without any effort at all. I've got photographs of him spinning around in circles on two wheels. I hope his mum's not listening. Lillian, um, yeah, I hope you are. I hope everything's good to you. But I know that Dave will be listening because he's a fan of story time. So I hope you are, Brad. But he also could do the best wheelies, the better wheelies than anybody I knew at the time, Dave Brad. Anyway, so first I knew that Dave had bailed on this bend on the way to Donington. Was when I came round a bend and I saw his leather-clad arse sticking out of a big ditch by the road and his beloved GS750 smoking away, but your back wheel's still spinning a few yards, a few yards further up the same ditch, Dave there with his ass stuck up. And I saw part of my Goldwing up, went running over like that, what have you done here? And he wouldn't take his helmet off, he, re he refused to take his helmet off because of a story that I'd told him recently about a biker who'd had an accident, seemed on her, on the scene, but when they took his helmet off, his head fell apart and he died, and I told Dave this. I can't even remember if it was true, but... He believed it, obviously. He kept his helmet on all weekend, Dave. He wouldn't take it off. He's like, no, I'm not taking it off. But when I said to him, is anything hurting? Have you hurt yourself? He just said, yeah, my fucking bollocks. My bollocks. And his, as his bike had hit the bottom of the ditch, David slipped forward, slid forward onto the fuel tank like that, smashing his tackle against it. And the, this glossy blue fuel tank now sported a perfect impression of Dave Bradbury's notoriously massive bollocks. It was amazing. It was just one of the best things ever. I've probably got photographs of it. Big bollock shit, dent in the top of this fuel tank. At the height of the 80s mod revival, you remember that when Quadrophenia came out, like 1980 or so? So about then, 1881, me being a mod, you know, with the music, um, my music taste, and a mod on a motorbike, I used to tell the bikers the music I was into, they'd look at me like sympathetically, sure, is that what you like? I'm like, yeah, that's what I like. Anyway, so I said, I'm going to see this film, Quadrophenia. And they all said, oh, we'll come with you. I'm like, sure. So they all came, we all went, all this big pack of bikers, about 20 odd, greasy, early bikers, sat in Thordian up, all them all in the line. Me and Dave Brad sat in the middle, you know, for protection, that's safe. The rest of the cinema just full of mods in suits and parkers, like that, looking at us. Have you come to the right film? But became close mates around that time with a lad called Ozzy from Delft. He was built like a brick shithouse. He's scared of nothing, scared of nobody. And he'd been in the Territorial Army. 
used to say I'm in the SAS and I'd, I'd say sure and he said yeah Saturdays and Sundays but you felt safe it was one of them people just such a big lad and confident and you just felt really safe around him he made me feel like Captain Scarlet whenever, whenever I was with him I felt indestructible you know I felt protected nothing was going to happen to me and I think he was a big influence in me becoming something of the man I am today really. I, I do think that being around Ozzy brought me out of my shell even more than I might have been <laughs> scary isn't it you know, things like life short, go for it. It just made me feel very confident in myself. Anyway, back at Thord, you know, pulled them. <laughs> 200 mods and 20 rockers, whatever. All laughing together, enjoying the quadrophenia movie. No issues at all, you know what I mean, fortunately. So all the hatred that you saw on the British beaches in the late 60s between mods and rockers, it didn't spill over into the 80s. And, you know, in the modern day, that kind of music-based territorialism, it doesn't exist now, does it? And that's a great thing. And as a sign of my modishness as well back then, I fitted my gold wing with extra mirrors. I put all these extra mirrors on it. <laughs> and multicoloured tassels, you know, hanging out at the end of the handlebars. And the other bikers down at the, the Spread Eagle pub in Ashton, it was a big biker hangout that we used to go to. They were looking like, oh, you're a knob, aren't you? And I was explaining, I'm more of a mod than a biker, you know, in terms of my music and my clothes and that. And I'd be stood there in this, like, stripy, button-down collared Ben Sherman shirt and my white straight like jeans and point issues or whatever but I still love that film Quadrophenia to this day I still I love it and every time I visit Brighton I always go to the spot where Phil Daniels took Leslie Ash up the back passage It'd be rude not to wouldn't it I've even taken Mrs Boone up the back passage a couple of times she finds it very uncomfortable you know because it's such a confined little alleyway between some some shops in the middle of Brighton and that so anyway so eventually my passion for making Music became stronger than my desire to be a biker, mainly for financial reasons, I think. I had to sell my Goldwing in 1985 so that I could buy some much-needed recording equipment for the studio that I was building in the mill in Ashton. You know, this is like when I was doing all this work with bands, recording stuff and that. So sold my bike for 800 quid. I bought a compressor, a couple of microphones. I can't remember, just music stuff. And I sold it to my mate, Paul Cooper. So 800 quid, and within three years, it was being hailed as one of the greatest motorbikes of all time. It still is. I think if I had it today, it'd be worth like four grand or more. Um, and I think it's still out there as well, because a few weeks ago, I did a search on the DVLC website, put my registration number in XRJ999S, and it came up saying uh, it's currently, you know, it's, it's got its MOT, it's out there somewhere. So you never know, maybe one day, me and my beloved Goldwing might be reunited. And I'm happy to say as well, Kenny Burry, Dave Bradbury, still with us, so is Mark Beckley and um, AKA Beck, because he's still here, I spoke to him the other day, all still in touch as well. In fact, Dave now comes on tour with the Inspirals, which is nice, selling our merchandise. And he doesn't do it for money either. He doesn't need the money. He just loves being out on the road with this gang, you know what I mean? And I find something really poetic about that. You know what I mean? It's like being on the road with your gang. It's it's like the bikers, where it's like guys in bands are now, isn't it? Or people in bands. But they're all, all these boys I've just mentioned, they're all still total boy racers, more than ever. They've got like multiples of bikes and fast cars, these buggers, you know what I mean? <laughs> And I think even though I'm still a mod at art, I think I still long for the day that I might be a biker again, you know, sat astride some big old Harley Davidson or something at the back, at the back of the pack, helping my mates back onto the bikes after they've come off on the bends and that, you know, listening to the jam or something. I do often think about the lads that didn't make it through that chapter of our lives, you know, for a while it seemed like every few months we were another man down. Mick Balesti, Kawasaki 900Z1B, absolutely beautiful thing it was on his way to work one rainy morning in Middleton, near Manchester. Barry Sullivan, Kawasaki KH250 on a, a bend 
on a ride out near Southport and his passenger Martin Robinson survived thankfully Duncan Watson under CB750 F2 at the bottom Buckstone Drawdenshaw and Gyro a lovely lad called Gyro on uh, Sharp Bend near the Floating Light pub on the moors overlooking Alden all top quality people taken much too young and all of them living the same dream You know, the lengths that some celebrities will go to to get free gear. It's just greedy, isn't it? I mean, these are the kind of people that can probably afford it anyway. They can afford to buy this gear more than the man in the street. You know what I mean? And there he is, or there she is on the phone. Any chance of a, a free washing machine? I play cricket for such a team, or play netball for such a team. Or can I have some free clothes? I'm Weather Girl on the digital TV channel, CAC TV or something. Some of these people, they go right out of the way, don't they, to spend as little as possible and... Get everything for now, all these good things for now. But the worst one, the worst one is when celebrities, like sports personalities or TV people, actors, musicians, when they blag a free car, right? So these car companies or car dealerships, they give, they give these famous people or semi-famous herbers or once famous, they give them brand new top-of-the-range motors, only for nothing, on the condition that we can paint your name down the side of it. They paint the celebrity's name in big letters, don't they, on the side of the car, you know, yeah, I know, tossers, losers, yeah, total sellouts, you know. Such a body from Doncaster Rovers drives this Datsun. And he's there and he's driving around with everyone pointing at him, like, oh, look, there's who's it out of Doncaster Rovers in his heavily branded sponsorship deal freeloader car, you know what I mean? Shitbags, aren't they? Well, I did that once, I did that once. Um, I blagged a free car with my name on it. In fact, I did it twice, actually. But the first one... It was in about 2009, and I bumped into a friend of mine, and he just landed a new job, Graham Reedy. He'd worked in the motor industry for um, a few years, and he, he told me that he'd just got this uh, new job as the boss of the BMW Mini Garage in Manchester on Chester Road, not far from what was then XFM and is now Radio X. So I popped in for a brew, and Graham was a lovely chap, got on great, and he, he showed me the new Mini Range and I had no intention of buying one. I couldn't really afford one. And I was happy with my, my shagged out Saab 93. It's been a right good car, that, at this point. I used to call it the Shark, the Saab. I used to call it the Shark because it had this uh, really weird, like, it was like a plastic fin hanging down underneath. Probably for uh, aerodynamic reasons or something like that. But it always looked a bit like the exhaust was hanging off. Anyway, I called it the Shark. During my visit, Graham mentioned that the Mini Clubman wasn't selling that well. The other Minis, the other minis were doing good, but he had a couple of these Clubmans on the on the forecourt, these are the ones with the little two little doors at the back, like a minivan, but five seats, but two little doors at the back. And no one seemed interested in, in this model, but the regular model was flying out like shit off a shovel. So that night in bed, I had this moment of complete inspiration. I even woke Charlie up to tell her, oh, Charlie, Charlie, yeah, Charlie, hey, hey, wake up, wake up. I've got listen to this, right? Anyway, my idea, <laughs> my idea was to persuade Graham 
to give me one of these mini clubmans or clubmen. Clubmen? What's the plural of mini clubmen? I think it's probably mini clubmans, isn't it? So I said, anyway, this was the idea. Graham gives me the car, funky little doors on the back and everything. And I'll get my mate Carl, who's got a company called Signbox up in Oldham. And they do uh, they, they do that wrap art around cars, completely wrapped cars in vinyl. And I said, we'll get him, we'll get him to wrap it in Boone Army camouflage artwork with my name on it and a big fuck off red star on the side and all that, like a military star. And then from there, I can cruise about in it. I can have fun, put a big PA system in it, set my DJ gear up in the back so I can DJ out the back of it at festivals and other outdoor events. I think Charlie, when I told her that night, she said something about me being a tight, blagging chancer and said, if he goes for that, Graham, it'll be the, the best blag of all time. So next thing, I'm driving this green mini clubman up to Oldham to Carl's place so that he could wrap it in this Boone Army artwork that I'd designed. And I left it with him for a couple of days and then went picking up. Well, when I went picking up, fuck me, it was the coolest car I'd ever seen. Every inch of it was covered, even windows, right? And I even got Carl to include stickers in the artwork to include some of the other businesses that I was doing. So like South Nightclub and XFM logo, Mrs. Boone's Cakes and Spiral Carpets with Cow and all that. And we got my name on it. Rather than just saying Clint Boone drives a whatever minute, it was like dog tags. You know those identity tags that soldiers were? We had some of them incorporated in the artworks. It said Clint Boone drives a Williams Mini in big letters. So that was that sorted out. I think a little bit of me inside somewhere back then might have been asking if all this was a bit over the top. You know what I mean? But mainly I was thinking two words, free car, right? Free car. And people had literally been, they'd stop in the tracks as I drove past. You know, children would be pointing and laughing like that. <laughs> You'd see people taking photos of it in car parks. And people would leave messages as well under the windscreen wipers. I'd leave it somewhere outside shops or come back. All bits of paper, mainly requests for shout outs on XFM, but with, you know, the occasional you are a pure tits boon sort of thing, but mainly positive stuff. One of the really nice things that happened as a direct result of me getting that Boone Army Mini was me getting onto Twitter. That's the, the only reason I went onto Twitter is because of that car. And it was because of a, a friend of Graham's, a chap called Nathan, he had a PR company in Manchester. And he told us about this new thing, Twitter, that he said would be the perfect way of having some fun with this, this Mini, with its exploits and, you know, create a character for it and... Uh, hopefully sell a few mini clubmans, clubmans at the same time, right? So this Boon Army Mini went on Twitter and it instantly became really popular as a character on Twitter. We even had, when we got the car, as a bit of a launch for the Boon Army Mini, we got in touch with the local uh, group of military vehicle enthusiasts and persuaded them to do a little convoy through Manchester. So they turned up with a tank and this personnel carrier and we all drove around Manchester in a line, little Boone Army Mini in the middle, tank at front, personnel carrier at the back. And we spent all night driving around taking photographs and films. And eventually we, we did a photo shoot outside South Nightclub. Now, if you're familiar with that little crossroads, uh, it's proper small and it's only about 10 foot wide. And we managed to get this tank stuck diagonally between two buildings, like the, um, the scene out of Austin Powers where it gets stuck in that corridor. It was like that. <laughs> but the picture of the military vehicle combo with the Boone Army Mini. Stunning. A couple of disadvantages with having that Mini. The main thing was there was no privacy at all, obviously, because not that privacy or anonymity were on my mind when I, I you know, invented the idea. I mean, it's such a ridiculous creation, I think. But basically, every time I went anywhere, people would be shouting, Boone Army, Boone Army, you know, which is okay. But I had to make sure that my driving was spot on. I had to make sure that, you know, I was good, courteous, you know, no dicking about, because everybody would know who I was. So definitely no, no road rage going on, you know what I mean? You know, it's all like 
Yeah, you know, mate, yeah, it's all right. You've just cut me up. Oh, no problem. On. Yeah, go on there. You go, yeah, Boone Army. Yeah, it was all that restrained and that. Charlie did her best to avoid driving it. When she did drive it, she kept her head down, trying not to make eye contact with all the road users, you know what I mean? But when my dad was poorly, so pretty much right through that year, towards the end of my dad's life, and he was ill, and I'd phone my mum every night on the way home from XFM, and she'd be on the phone giving me the latest updates on my dad's health. You know, he's, he's not eating, he's not sleeping, he's had to go to hospital, he's having this done, he's having that done. And it was very rarely good news, you know what I mean? I'd be having these conversations with my mum, really serious conversations, quite upsetting. And I'd have her on a loudspeaker in the car. But somebody next to me at red light to be like, oh, Boone Army! Ah, ah, pipping his own heart. You all right, Booney? <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm just, um, I'm on form. Yeah, Boone Army. My dad's not so, I've just got, I've got Todd. You know what I mean? But I, all the time, I remember the attention the car got. It was just incredibly positive. I never regretted having it. And the Boone Army Mini, it just, it just, it never failed to bring a smile to people's faces everywhere I went. You know what I mean? And even though the Mini went back after about a year or so, we stripped it and it went back into circulation as a, a normal Mini. Its beautiful skin went, we took it off and put it back into the uh, into the system, if you like. But you can still see it. If you go on Twitter now, if you go to at Boone Army Mini, the timeline's still there. And the final message is from me to the Mini saying, see you later, darling. Cheers for the good times. On each episode of Storytime, I like to chat about a specific song that I've written at some point over the years and uh, tell you about how it came about. So today it's another song from the NG Benji album, which I've talked about on previous episodes, uh, 7, and uh, seven, 8 and 13. There you go. <laughs> so as I've been talking earlier about my years as a motorbike rider, I'm keeping that theme going a bit here. I wrote this song for a character in uh, NG Benji's world called Messenger Moore. And now Moore was this very hardworking, very determined motorbike dispatch rider. The song's called Go More Go. And unlike a lot of my songs, there's no hidden meanings in this one. It's not going to take a lot of explaining. You know, there's no no double entendres, there's no innuendo. It's just a song about a dispatch rider in this psychedelic little world that she lived in. And as with the rest of the NG album, I recorded it in my little studio in the attic of a little house that me and Charlie used to have in Stockport back then. So the sample shouts at here on it, hey, hey, you hear all this business going on. That was something that I'd made for the Clint Boone Experience songs that I'd worked on a few years earlier. Most of the sounds on there, the musical sounds are MIDI sounds. And my beloved Farfisa Compact Duo is on there, you'll hear the organ, no problem. And some uh, little motorbike samples as well that I had some fun with the messed around with. I used to use a trick quite a lot on some of these recordings back then, which you can hear on this. I'd get a drum machine, program a pattern into it, and then get the drum machine to trigger sounds on an external keyboard. Rather than it triggering drum sounds, I'd have it triggering other sounds from other machines. And then I'd program a different drum pattern into the drum machine at, at the same beats per minute. And I'd use that to play the actual drum sounds. Have you got that? Have you got that? Yeah? Good. So the effect was it would create these quite random sounding, really upbeat keyboard arpeggio sequences that just tick away through the song. And that's how I created this nifty little squeaky thing that's going on in the background on the track you're about to hear. All the voices on it are mine, even the really high falsetto ones. I had to put some tight trousers on to get those notes. And it's probably the most upbeat song about a dispatch rider 
ever written. Elton John gets the award for the most downbeat, but the most beautiful one for his um, 1978 classic, Song for Guy. His track was named uh, as a tribute to a, the record company's dispatch rider, Guy Birchill, who died. He was only 17, uh, and he died on the day that Elton wrote that piece of music. That's why it's called Song for Guy. And it's the one with the lyric, Life Isn't Everything. And what I only realised today when I was putting this together was on that track that Elton John did in 78, he used a drum machine called the Boss DR55. When I did the um, Go More Go track that you're about to hear, I used um, a slightly different version of the same machine. So I've got it in my hand, it's a Boss DR5. I didn't even know that until I was putting this uh, podcast together. Uh, so if you want to hear the Elton John track, Song for Guy, it will be on the Spotify playlist to accompany this and it's beautiful. But in the meantime, this is me, a song I wrote for Engie Benji, and it's a track called Go More Go. Messenger mode, messenger mode She will take your message where it needs to go So put your little note inside her envelope and give it Messenger mode, messenger mode Go more, go more, go, go, go Go more, go more, go, go, go Towards the end of every episode of Storytime, I'd like to give you a little bit of um, insight into what goes on in the, the Boom world, in the Boom family, in the Boom house. So our lovely bunny rabbits, Snowflake and Caramel, are now living a life of luxury right now in the Boom garden. They wander around freely most of the day, totally happy in the new home. They never try to escape, they're, just, they're happy in that you know 30-foot radius of the, where they live, the hutch. They've been with us now for about 10 episodes. <laughs> Do you get it? About four months, I think, we've had them now. But you can tell they've really accepted us as their new family, but neither of them are too keen on being picked up yet. I still have to put my protective coat on and my gloves, you know, especially if I need to pick caramel up for a cuddle. I have to get 
all geared up with my rabbit outfit and getting them back into the rutch at night. They love being out and it's a bit of a drama when it's time for bed. They just want to stay out all night and I end up chasing them around the garden, iPhone in one hand, you know, with torch on and my long rabbit stick in the other um, and I said rabbit stick, right? I've got, I've actually got a stick, it's my rabbit stick and it's to nudge them on the arse and trying to get them to get back to bed and that. So because the cold weather's moving in, I decided that uh, this week I should move the rabbit hutch into a more sheltered part of the garden, right? It's only a few feet away from where it was, but it's just around a little corner. And a few days ago, I got on with it. I went out in the morning, gave them a bunch of kale to eat in the little bedroom, which they love. That's what we do. We start every day like that. I took them kale in bed and I started to explain to them what was going on. And they're both looking at me. I'm there like, so I'm going to move your, your hutch a little bit. To, because when, and they're both looking at me like, what the fuck are you talking about? You, you, we are rabbits. You're a boat. We, don't, we can't understand you, right? But I always talk to them. I just figured that with these animals, most animals probably, they probably find comfort in being spoken to in, in gentle tones, don't they? You know, by a bronze-winning podcaster, you know what I'm saying? But Manny Rango, he loves it. I could talk to him all day and he, he, he loves it. I can tell him, he'll be on my shoulder like that and I can chat to him for hours and he's just sat there like that, all relaxed with his scaly skin and his little eyes looking in different directions. That reminds me, I must phone the mother-in-law. Our fish, though... Our fish that don't have a name, he doesn't seem to bother too much. When I talk to him, I'll be talking to him through glass like that. You're all right. And he just looks at me like with his mouth going like that. You know, like he's I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. I'm like, just fucking fed you half an hour ago, you blagger. I don't communicate much with fish. I'll feed him, clean his uh, tank out occasionally. I don't really, we don't, he's not very conversational. Anyway, so I chat to rabbits while they're having the, the breakfast and then I, I give him a little nudge. I nudge them so they go down down the little stairs in the hutch, down to the ground floor, which doubles as a, a patio and the toilet. And then they come out onto the grass and then they spend the day jumping about, chasing each other, eating grass, making rabbit poo, all that kind of stuff. So they're doing that. And I get to uh, get to work on this, this hutch. I move it around the corner, clean it all out, put new sawdust in it, get some new air in the bedroom and that. Put a thermal rabbit hutch cover over it, ready for winter. Jobs are good and it looks smart. While I'm doing this, snowflake and caramel, they're not taking any notice at all. They're just gallivanting about in the garden, chasing each other. And after a while, I think, right, I better show them now where the new location is for their house so that they don't get confused later on. So I get my rabbit coat on, get my gloves on and my rabbit stick. And I thought, I'll get caramel, I'll sort caramel out first. If I can get him in the zone, he'll tell snowflake what's going on. He seems like the more dominant one. He really looks after Snowflake, but the brother and sister. So I walk over to Caramel with my, my coat on and my gloves and my rabbit stick. And he always knows, right, if he sees me in my rabbit outfit, that equals me wanting to pick him up. So he fucking sets off, down here across the garden, legging it. Says something to Snowflake, so she goes the other direction, legging it, starts hiding. And I'm running after him, like I do most nights when it's, when it's bedtime. I have to run after him. It's like something out of Ben Hill. And after about a quarter of an hour, he's thinking, right, I'm not happy about this. I'm getting a bit knackered. I'll go to my hutch. I'll run into hutch. So he runs over to where his house used to be, right, and he stops in his tracks like that. You can almost imagine this big thought bubble above his head with the, the rabbit equivalent of WTF in it. You know what I mean? I've never seen such a baffled rabbit. Baffled rabbit. That's a great name for a band, isn't it? Baffled rabbit. Anyway, so he turns around and looks at me like, I said, what's going on here? Where's my house? And I'm talking all the way through me, trying to explain, you know, move your house, I'll move it around the corner there, just so you feel a bit warmer, you know, it's shielded from the wind and that. And while Caramel's off guard, I grab him, I grab him hard, Fur, fur's going everywhere, because they've got the, the, these rabbits with really long hair, 
lose a lot of first in <laughs> fighting your fit. Her everywhere like that. And I'm cuddling him, stroking him, settling him down and that. And then I walk round to the front of the hutch in its new place and I said, There you go, there, same house, same house, slightly different address. And I plonk him down in his patio like that, throw him a bit more kale just to keep him happy. And then I set about catching snowflakes, same thing, fast little buggers on all of it guarded. I could probably build a little treadmill. You know, for them to go on, if I, if I stuck them on a treadmill and tied them onto it, they could probably create enough energy to power our, our strimmer or something, our garden strimmer. And eventually I, I get Snowflake into the um, relocated hutch and I'll even both to settle in for a bit and get accustomed to the, the new view, you know what I mean? They're looking in a different direction now. And after about half an hour, they'll seem settled, so I think, right. But this has been, been nearly a full day's work this, at this point. Caramel decides to step out. And the hutch is now on, on flagstones, so it's just a couple of feet from where the grass starts. Caramel stood there looking out on his doorstep, really confused again, looking down at the flags like that. And he's not having it. And then I realised he's probably never had to step down, it's about six or seven inches off the ground, onto these flags. He's never had to do that, has he? He's only ever jumped onto grass in the six years since he arrived in the world. He's, he's been straight onto grass. He's never seen flagstones. And I put my hand in and tried nudging him. On, on the bump to make him jump out and he wasn't having it he was scared he shit it went back in it probably looked like a bottomless pit to him he probably didn't look and think oh that's uh, India stone um, flagstones is it that's he's probably thinking that's the end of the world that's the fucking edge of the planet so anyway I threw a load of sawdust on it on the flags and air onto the flags so it looked more familiar and that did the trick soon they're both out again running around the garden bouncing about happy as Larry who was that Larry? Did you ever think that? You know that bloke who that saying refers to? Happy as Larry. Larry. Who was he? And why was he so happy? There's, there's got to be a story there, aren't there? Anyway, back to rabbits. They're happy. They've been in the new, you know, location. But still, when it was time to get them in that night, they still ran to their old address. I had to, I had to take a stick to the little asses again, nudge them into the right direction. They, they, it's going to take a bit of... Um, educating them, you know what I mean? They're not going to get it in one go. It's going to take a few days, you know what I mean? But I'll, I'll do it. I'll just, I'll keep you posted. It just goes to show though, doesn't it? Old rabbits, habits die hard. Right, time for me to get off. Thanks again for downloading this podcast. Do try and check out the Spotify playlist I put together for each episode of Storytime. And that consists of complete versions of the songs on each episode and some of the other stuff that I've talked about as well. I hope you've enjoyed listening again. Uh, leave some comments on my iTunes page if you get a moment. And as I said at the start of this episode, there will be adverts on the podcast from next week to help towards the cost of putting Storytime out there. Thanks as always to my friends over at Distorted uh, for making this sound brilliant. And do check out my other podcast, Set to Go, uh, which is available as a free download on iTunes if you enjoy if you enjoy the journey of searching for new music. It's always nice to finish each episode with uh, some unsigned music. And this week, a band called Nihilists. They're a new three-piece band from Manchester. James Madrisky on vocals, Stephen Kelly guitars and programming, and John Patterson on drums and other instruments. He's a bit of a multi-instrumentalist, apparently. James Madrisky, you might think that's a familiar name. He was the frontman of a band called Purescence, and a man gifted one of the most exquisite singing voices ever, in my opinion, James Madrisky. And also on the track that you're about to hear, Nick McCabe, legendary guitarist of The Verve, 
Uh, he's playing guitar on both the tracks on this double A-side single that Nihilist are about to put out. The information on the single, it's wall space on one side and it's over, it's so over on the other side. As I said, it's a double A-side record. Coming out on the 11th of November 2016. Classic Album Club Records. Now, even though I'm saying this is unsigned upcoming, um, there is somebody putting out, and it's an interesting story, which is part of the reason I wanted to include it. So Nihilist debut record, it's been made possible by a group of very passionate Facebook people who formed a thing called Classic Album Club Records, CAC. So it's a collective of obsessive music fans who happen to be, check this out, doctors, right? So the doctors who got together, they put together this little uh, music club. They're based in Sunderland. It's run by two uh, GPs, Phil Peverley and Nicky Waldman. And they were drawn to the music of Nihilist and who decided to get behind it and help them to release a single uh, which is great so have a read about Classic Album Club or CAC Records if you want to follow Nihilists online I'll spell it first of all N-I-H-I-L-I-S-T-S that's N-I-H-I-L-I-S-T-S if you want to follow them online there's a website nihilists.co.uk on Facebook it's Nihilists Music and on Twitter at Nihilists Music if you want to follow CRC Records online they've got a website ClassicAlbumClubRecords.com So the track you're about to hear was recorded at the Edge Studios in Alderley Edge, Cheshire, produced by Nihilist, and it's a track, a gorgeous track called Over Is Over. Enjoy this, and I'll speak to you soon. Lots of love to you. Storytime with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes.